this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I am joined this week by regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. And welcome back to the show, John. Always glad to see you. John Walters, he is a political reporter and the force behind the Vermont Political Observer blog. And uh, we were just commenting before the show, John, that you have just been With this political season, man, you've been churning out the blog posts left, right, and center. (laughs) Well, it's it's been a busy year, and there, you know, there's so much to write about. There's still stuff that I would like to write about the primary, even though it's almost a month in the rear view. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff going on. Well, I, I hope in the second half we'll we'll get to some of the the political chit chat or maybe a little gossip because we do like to do that from time to time. But before we do that, we're going to talk about there's some big news dropped about what's happening with the Vermont emergency housing funding. Uh, two programs in particular, the Vermont Emergency Rental Assistance, which a lot of people call VRAP. And then also the transitional housing pr- uh, program. Those are two that I've seen come across the the newswire. And then there's something else, Emily, I can tell. So it's all one pot of money that everyone sort of calls the VRAP money, which is the Vermont Rent- Emergency Rental Assistance Program. And it's all this pot of federal money, mm-hmm. mostly through FEMA, that covers the Vermont Emergency Rental Assistance Program that sends money directly from the Vermont State Housing Authority to folks who have a low enough income and need assistance paying their rent through the pandemic. But there's also the GA housing, which it's been paying for, which is the motel housing. And originally the motel housing was paid for in a different way, but it's been paid through this program since the spring. And then all of the utility assistance money that's been going out for the last however many months, years, also goes through this fund. And then there's a fourth category, which is rental assistance directly to folks on reach up that's been going out from this fund. And then I think there might be a fifth category, though I'm not sure what it is. And the reason that naming all of those different pots of money is important, we will get into because it is perhaps part of the massive administrative failure that led to this point. Right. Which, thank you for that rundown. I was actually kind of hoping to talk about what's going to happen to the money first before we dove into like which yes, different parts. Let's do it. But, let's do it. But so, John, tell us um, what, why, why is this a concern right now? What's happening with the, what decision has the administration made? Well, um, uh, I think it was uh, roughly a little over a week ago, uh, the administration held a press conference in which they announced that VRAP was almost out of money, uh, that they were going to have to start cutting off people at the end of September, which is extremely sudden, especially in the very, very tight rental market we have, you know, across Vermont. Um you know, to suddenly cut off people's uh, assistance that quickly. And thousands more would be cut off in 
at the end of November, and then the fund would dwindle down and maybe make it through the winter for the rest of the people. Uh, and this would also involve apparently cutting off uh, utility assistance uh, just as the snow is starting to fly. And the the reason the 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 potential scandal behind this is that the administration announced this with very little warning, with no warning, and they claimed that they said that they didn't realize it until like just now, um, which is either astounding managerial incompetence or they are lying. And I don't know which is worse and I don't know which it is. Um, did they not know about it until just now? They should have. Uh, did they know about it before now and hold off on telling people until there was no choice but to take drastic action? You know, did they know about it? Supposedly, this is a result of the U.S. Treasury changing the rules on, on the federal money, which happened in the spring. If they realized it in the spring and they didn't tell the legislature, then that's a really big deal. Uh, you know, the most charitable interpretation is that they royally screwed up. Mm -hmm. And we should just, if I understand what you're, you're implying, John, about the springtime is, you know, spring is kind of March to, to May, but the legislature might have still been in session when they found yeah. out. And so they could have taken action. Um, is that kind of what you're implying? Uh, yeah, <laughs> just check it. <laughs> I mean, that's that, that's the that's the evil interpretation of mm -hmm. what they had. You know, the like I said, the 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 uh, positive interpretation is that they just uh, it was a, just a complete management, uh, what the British call a cock up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, there was a massive administrative failure with the Department of Labor in the spring that was not shared with the legislature until August. Right. That also had a pretty significant impact on people's lives and the legislature was not in a position to do anything about because they found, we found out about it too late. So there are some themes that I think we'll unpack a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one thing that jumped out to me when I was reading John's latest post on, on your blog is just, you know, Vermont trumpeted at the beginning of COVID how well it responded to keeping people housed um, mm -hmm. through the rental assistance, through the general assistance slash uh, hotel program, through all these different really quick measures that people just kind of buckled down and problems that they solved. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to, to say that it sounds like this, um, this turn of events has, has it unraveled all of that good work? Well, I think what's extraordinary about it is we, that first round, we did it so well with totally open dollars and shows to spend money that we could have spent anyway on that particular population on that particular challenge so that the next round of federal money had to be spent that way across the country. So we did this thing very well. Then everyone else in the country was required to do it. There were more restrictions put on it, which did alter the way we were sort of the existing programs we had created were going to be administered, of course, more complicated because that's what happens when federal regs get involved, which is, you know, 
government accountability is important. Here's an example of where government accountability didn't work. Um, and I think one thing that I've been talking about with colleagues about this is so that first round, and we talked about this so much on the show already, that first round was about public health. And I think there were a lot of people who felt like, I need to make sure that those people are kept in sort of safe, semi-isolated conditions and cared for so that me and my people are safe. And I think that was a lot of the comfort around that sort of that first real emergency move. That's the uncharitable interpretation of it. But I think it allowed the combination of that and sort of, you know, housing is a human right. This is a public health emergency thinking it helped all of those perspectives to come together and to have broad agreement that that's what we needed to do. There is now a majority of folks across the country, maybe across the globe, who think that the public health emergency has passed. And so all things must wind down. What I think is striking about this is there were many of us in the legislature, outside of the legislature, who thought, and we've talked about this so much on the show, housing's a human right, housing's better for the economy, it's better for humans, it's better for everything, people need to stay housed, we figure out how to do that during the pandemic, let's not let it go. Mm -hmm. And while the public health emergency might have passed in some ways, the housing crisis is actually worse than it was back yeah. then because yeah. of the knock-on economic effects of us becoming the public health refuge for the you know rich and famous. And we now have much more of a housing crisis than we did before. And even if all of, you know, even if people had resources were in the motels, they have nowhere to go. And I don't like, there's article after article about it, but I still feel like people don't really like feel in their bones how few options there are for people for housing right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think, Joe? The, uh, the um, uh, I, I believe if I recall correctly, the current, uh, rental vacancy rate in Vermont as a total is like two to two and a half percent. That sounds about right. A healthy vacancy rate is more like four to five percent. That's where the market forces balance out between landlords and renters. So it's way out of whack. And in Chittenden County, the vacancy rate is 0.4 percent. And that's true in Wyndham County, too. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there's nowhere for people to go. There's, you know, there's nowhere for people in emergency housing or motels to go, even if they have the money to pay for it. Um, the other thing I'll, I, I mentioned here about our housing crisis is there was just an article on the VT Digger a few days ago about how uh, more and more of our housing is being bought by investors. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, often, not occupied. Mm -hmm. Um, this is more of a problem with high-end housing in places like Stowe and Killington, uh, but it uh, it has its effect on the whole on the market as a whole, and um, uh, it it makes building expensive housing more attractive to builders. Um, so you know it's it's part of the big crunch that you know uh, that has made this sort of what was supposed to be a nice smooth glide path out of the pandemic assuming you think we're out of the pandemic uh, and, and to, you know, a sustainable housing uh, system uh, that has been short circuited um, 
partly because of market forces, partly because of you know unforeseen knock-on effects of the pandemic. Um, but it's a mess. I mean, we we have the emergency rental assistance program winding down, and there's no prospect of there's no real clear idea, at least in my head, of how we're going to deal with like you know by the end of November, eight thousand four hundred households having their rental assistance gone. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if either of you have um, have a handle on this, but you know one. One question I had when I was just um, reading some of these articles is, okay, if we're taking the argument that the pandemic has passed and things need to wind down, um, if we're just taking that argument, then have either of you heard why people still need this assistance? I mean, I'm curious, like, did people go into the pandemic um, and through the course of the pandemic, rents have gone up like crazy? So now they need more assistance. Is it that people are still having a hard time finding work? Um, what problems, you know, were there problems going into the pandemic? How much of this is not, pan- like, let's just, is there context there? So there is not as much data as might be desired in an ideal universe of understanding the problem. And certainly Vermont struggles with that one on a good day. Um, I also want to be clear, like, this is not inevitable that this will happen. This is just what the administration announced. So I, and we spend too much time having the administration announce something and we all assume it's inevitable. So I want to be very clear about that one. It's not inevitable. It's just been announced. Um, And the rules haven't even been finalized yet. So, but there are a lot of folks um, in the motels specifically who were having housing struggles before the pandemic would have been um, in the overflow shelter around the state um, in the winter, would have been camping during the summer, couch surfing. Some people think there's sort of a distinction between the couch surfing population stability and the not able to couch surf population stability um, and how those folks should be eligible or not eligible. That was part of the original GA housing rules. And so a lot of those folks are sort of the standard churn of the failing capitalist post whatever universe we live in. Um, There are certainly a lot of folks who are still struggling mightily financially because childcare is really still very, very, very hard for many families. Um, And wages have not, you know, we know that rents have skyrocketed. um, And a lot of people are being sort of evicted if they do find a new place it's much more expensive than the last place um and people are being evicted because building you know houses are being sold um in order for second homeowners or you know pandemic refugees so there's that population one thing that's interesting about and i can i get into the money part yet olga or should i keep okay so (laughs) there's split between the sort of the Let's leave the utilities aside for now. But there's the money that goes directly to reach up participants that is happening automatically. So there isn't a question for reach up participants. Are you struggling to pay rent? Here is your rental subsidy. It is going automatically to reach up participants to cover the rent. Now, we've talked before in the show and had an entire episode dedicated to reach up where it's very like there's no universe where the $400 a month that goes to reach up is enough money for people. And so this was a way to sort of make reach up a more living 
possibility for folks. But again, it's not linked to people's ability or inability to pay their rent based on their living situation. Similarly, the VRAP that we sort of, that's like actually the program that's actually called VRAP that goes out of the Vermont State Housing Authority. Um, when that first started, the eligibility was linked much more closely to people's ability to pay, much more closely related to people having back rent bills. Mm-hmm. But in the spring, when there was concern that we actually weren't spending the money fast enough for the feds, there was a much bigger push on that program to get money out the door. And, and so, so yeah. is the, there's also mortgage assistance too. Yeah. Is that wrapped in there too? Mortgage assistance, lot assistance, um, lot rent and rent, rent. Um, and so there's a bigger push to get that money out the door. It's possible and sort of hypothesized that maybe some of the folks with that money are financially eligible, but not sort of emergence, might not have an emergency need. Mm-hmm. But again, don't have data on that. But that's sort of, it seems like it's possible that that was sort of the rapidly growing alligator mouth that ate up the other funds because there was a big push for that. The motel assistance has grown a little bit, but not in sort of an alligator mouth way from what we can tell so far that we have not gotten final numbers from the administration. Um, And then the utility assistance was very, very slow to get the word out. As John, as you said, winter's coming for the utilities. The one thing that's sort of reassuring to me about that is that we actually have regulatory mechanisms in place that people's electricity and heat can't be shut off during the winter. Um, So that like, you know, at least we actually have laws connected and regulations connected to that one, unlike the fact that like people can still be evicted in the middle of the winter in Vermont with no recourse. So that's, that's like the different pieces of money and how they fit together and how the dollars might have gotten spent quickly. If I may ask Emily a question, um, you, you mentioned earlier that you and your colleagues are talking about this. Um, obviously I would expect that, but uh, what are you saying? What's going to come from the legislature or do you know it yet? You know, the speaker and the pro tem put out a statement immediately that was, you know, the very polite sort of dem need to collaborate with the administration version of like, what the F happened here? <laughs> and why did you not talk to us? Right. But it was like very polite. And definitely there are some people who are like, why must we always be so polite? Um, we have limited options before January, as you know. And even if we have a plan going into January, you know, nothing in a best case scenario, money wouldn't get out the door until mid-February. Um, the only two, the only real mechanism we have available before January is the Joint Fiscal Committee, um, which I sit on and does not actually have any real decision-making power, it really just has sort of the power of hearings and persuasion and can approve things that the administration proposes but can't do formal budget adjustment. So it depends on how far the money is moving, depends on how much we could do. I am positive, though I have not seen the numbers, that there are other funds that have not been spent fast enough in other places of the administration, because that's what every past report I've gotten has said. And so it's 
possible that there's other money that could be moved around, that the rules could be shifted, that things could be postponed between now and then. But again, that requires collaboration with the administration to get done and creates this really interesting balancing act that you are incredibly eloquent about, John, which is basically like, what is our role as legislators to hold the administration accountable for like what often can seem like gross negligence and be in this position in a tiny state where most policy is made through what feels like personal relationships to actually get it done because at a citizen legislature, it's very, very hard to craft good policy without the corresponding administrative branch or department collaborating. And so how would real accountability possibly keep us from developing good policy in the future? And I think the Department of Labor is a great case study of that from last year. John, yeah, there's, a, there's a whole thing that, that I, I'm going to write someday uh, about the almost complete lack of oversight in the state. Uh, the, the working title is we have no idea how well our government works. Um, and, you know, it's like the auditor does a little bit of stuff that the legislature's joint fiscal office does some good stuff. But uh, the citizen legislature is really in no position structurally to um, carry out the kind of oversight that, say, the U.S. Congress does. Um, so, you know, the administration, uh, whichever administration it is, basically is... Uh, doesn't really have any effective outside oversight uh, 90% of the time or more or more than that. So, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> well, actually it, it made me wonder, John, uh, if someone was to put in a public records request, which mm -hmm. is a form of oversight, yeah. what are some of your outstanding questions? Like what kind of information or, or questions would you be looking for? Well, um, the thing that I would be focusing on is, you know, when the administration knew about this, you know, did they have no idea until last week, um, you know, end of August? Um, did they know earlier? And when did they know? And how much did they know when? Um, and so, you know, the, the way to get at that would be to do a public records request for any communications within the administration uh, written, digital, whatever, uh, having to do with VRAP uh, and, and its budgeting. Um, and that would clarify a lot. It would be a fair bit of work to slog through all those emails, um, you know, and uh, it would be nice if one of our remaining media organizations with any muscle left on the bone, uh, like maybe VT Digger would take this on. Um, because I think there is a story to tell about how this happened. And all we have now is a very sketchy version of the administration's version of how this happened. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a negative Nelly here with my two reporter friends, but okay, let's say someone slogs through all those public records requests. It turns out that the administration knew in March, and this was actually a deliberate ploy to end this program without anyone doing anything about it. Then what? I mean, that's what happened with the Department of Labor last year. Like we were, it was very clear to the entire legislature that they had purposely kept a secret from us in order to not implement a law that we put into effect and yet nothing happened. 
That is because the person who was commissioner was an interim commissioner at the point was actually promoted to being a permanent commissioner in the midst of that. Emily, the only answer I have for you, and this is a frustration I have as a journalist, is a journalist's job is to witness and to tell the truth. But it's the community's job to then take that truth and act on it. So the question I would put to the legislature is who's, who's acting on anything. And I would put the question to the voters too. Like, how are you going to act on this new information? Because, you know, a journalist can write about something till they're blue in the face, but until the community does something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you get the constant uh, complaints about the media that they aren't covering a certain thing enough. Um, and the truth is that you, kind of can't cover something enough to penetrate the public consciousness unless there's some sort of, you know, uh, zeitgeist momentum build. You know, you can put out a great story on, like, uh, Digger has done a lot over the years on EB-5, and I think that has finally stuck, at least to the extent that, you know, people generally know that EB-5 was supposed to be a good thing and it turned out to be a fiscal disaster. Um, But um, that takes a lot, and a lot of it is out of the media's hands. So, you know, a lot of the time when, when I hear someone say the media hasn't covered this, you know, I can point to some examples of when the media has covered it, but, you know, the media can only do so much. And yes, after that, it has to pick up steam from legislators, responsible officials, members of the public putting pressure on. And that's one of the things that's kind of frustrating ongoingly about Phil Scott mm. is that he seems to have a Teflon coating and <laughs> none of this ever sticks to him. And, you know, there are clear signs that his administration at least sometimes falls down on the job and, and there's not enough quality control. Um, but so, so far he hasn't paid the price. So we, we, we have to go to break in a minute, but since we did open this can of worms, if as Emily said, if this was a ploy to wind down this program, who's, is there anyone's, is, is there anyone whose specific job would be to hold the governor's feet to the fire? Like, can, can, is like, yeah. Is there a chain of command? Is there, is it just at the voting booth? Like, I mean, Every minute that a citizen legislature spends in that kind of government accountability is a minute that we can't spend actually trying to solve the problem that the administration created. So an example that I think is a very neat parallel is this Department of Labor issue where they purposely and basically publicly did not implement a law and kept it a secret until we couldn't do anything about it because of sort of a federal rule thing. We had a working group already set up in statute that fall that was supposed to do some massive fixes to the unemployment insurance system. We only had three meetings that we were sort of appropriated and allowed to do. You can't actually change the number of meetings that you're allowed to make without an act of the legislature. So we had these three official meetings and those three official meetings, a huge amount of them was turned over to trying to hold the Department of Labor accountable for this administrative failure. And because of that, we didn't actually take the amount of time that we needed to solve some massive problems. And so, and part of the result of that was that the legislature still did not do very much 
about unemployment insurance this last session that we should have done. And so in the limited time that we have this fall to maybe be figuring out a plan for the January to do something about housing, are we gonna spend that having public hearings where we yell at the Department of, you know, the Agency of Administration and, you know, the Chair of Finance and Management about this issue and like get down and dirty into like why these six different programs weren't feeding into the right like spreadsheet line and no one was looking at that spreadsheet line? Or do we try to do something about housing? And I, there's no one, there's no one specific to do that. I have like grand ideas I can talk about after the break for something that New Mexico does, but we, yeah, nothing right now. And it's really frustrating. Well, that sort of chicken and the egg uh, uh, problem there is the result of the administration not announcing this until the last minute. Mm -hmm. So Thank if you. they were, if they are, if the evil interpretation holds, then their withholding of information actually helps them by preventing any effective review of what they did. Because as Emily said, the legislature's first job is to fix the problem that's been set for them. That said, I very rarely, like there's so much incompetence in the universe and people are struggling so hard right now. Like very rarely is the conspiracy true. Most of the time people are just failing and that's such as life. We will be back in a moment. Uh, the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Don't touch that dial. back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Brattleboro Community Television or BCTV, Emily's YouTube channel, our Facebook page, our webpage, and wherever you find podcasts. I am joined this week by regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from Brattleboro, as well as journalist John Walters. And we have been talking about... Um, in in the kind of microscopic, we've been talking about rental assistance and an announcement from the administration about how that rental assistance and how I should just say housing assistance um, may be going away for some people. However, as we've talked, it's kind of opened the bigger picture of government accountability and what can people actually do to hold their government accountable. Um, and Emily, during the break, you used a great phrase. Um, you said... What are what are people's outrage worth? Um, so before you answer that question, Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, and not the station, nor their employers, nor even their party. Thank you. So, um, John, can you answer Emily's question? What are you know when people? learn what their government's been up to and they are outraged what next uh well um the the simple answer probably comes straight out of the schoolhouse rock uh and it's obvious and uh we can repeat it until we're blue in the face and most people don't do it but you know it's uh 
it's getting involved. And that doesn't necessarily mean getting involved in like, you know, legislative hearings, uh, although it would be nice if more citizens showed up for legislative hearings and, you know, gave their input instead of hearing from the same officials over and over again. But, um, you know, getting involved locally, you know, um, working in your city party or county party, whichever party you're in, uh, you know, working, doing some volunteer work for a candidate or for a lawmaker. Um, in the absence of like lawmakers having staff, you know, maybe they could, you know, get some interested people in the community to do a little stuff for them. That would be amazing, universe. I just want to say thank you, John. Like campaign season of volunteers are great, but like legislative season volunteers would be magical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because mm -hmm. the work really is overwhelming for, for legislators. And I can say that because I'm not one. Uh, and, you know, I have seen it at work and I've seen the, the limited amount of time that, that the legislature has. And Emily was right when she said in the first half of the show that they have to make some really serious choices about what they do. And if they devote, like, if they had set up something like the January 6th commission and had, you know, months of interviews and, uh, you know, public hearings that are care carefully orchestrated and all that, then they wouldn't, that committee, those people wouldn't get anything else done that year. Mm -hmm. um, and you just can't leave policymaking alone that long. As it is, the legislature barely gets to, you know, I don't know, probably a third of the things that they could get to and that they really ought to get to. And it's not their fault. It's that it's everything takes time and they have very little of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if there were some way to uh, to get involved with your lawmaker um, uh, to do some to provide some help, whatever that might be, um, uh, that could be a really valuable, at least a little bit of an addition to, um, you know, to what the legislature can do and what we can do in the, in the policy space. And it's, just it's, amazing, it's amazing how much people think that the government is this thing that's far away. And, and yeah, in, in the federal universe it is, but uh, legislators are really, really highly accessible in Vermont. Uh, and, you know, they can be contacted and they take uh, public contact seriously and they take the views that they get seriously. So you can have an effect in a state like Vermont. And to put I just, sorry, Emily, I just want to be really clear in case there are listeners sitting out there wondering this. There's no one else in government like the Secretary of State, uh, thinking other elected officials or the auditor or any other office whose job it is to kind of look at the legislature or the administration and hold them accountable. Well, like that's. I mean, that's kind of what the auditor is supposed to do. So let's, okay. can we get into that in one second? Mm -hmm. I just want to put a fine point on what John said. If I get an email from a constituent about an issue, that's a big deal. If I get three, I start to think, oh my God, what's going on here? The most I've ever gotten on a single issue, and I'm talking about like abortion and guns and was on school lunches. Mm -hmm. And even then it was like 30. And I felt like there was like a waterfall um, or a hose or whatever water thing we would use to describe it. So it's like really, and that's true for other legislators too. It's not just, you know, me and my district. So 
it does matter. Thank you. So I, you know, there's other sort of mechanisms to hold accountable. I think it's also, you know, right before the break, I said that incompetence is generally more likely than conspiracies. Mm-hmm. And I want to be clear that there are a lot of reasons why the particular shape of the administration right now could fail. Um, and it's not because they're bad people. We've been chronically underfunding state government for decades under multiple administrations and multiple parties so that the people who are left have more to do and often less training to do it and less systems in place to do it well than at any other point in history, really. Um, in the history of like the grand bureaucratic experiment, you know, that started in the 1800s. So I, I don't want to blame any single individual for that. Though the po- I think the point of having politically appointed secretaries and commissioners is in order to blame a single individual. And the Scott administration is famously um, skilled at not blaming those secretaries and commissioners. In fact, they tend to get promoted. So I just want to be sort of like clear. I don't, you know, someone not looking at a spreadsheet might be because like we're all under like the worst chronic stress of our entire lives right now. And like everyone's doing a bad job at everything, myself included. Well, and I didn't ask the question assuming that there had been wrongdoing, but it sounds like just based on what I'm hearing from you and John right now is that we may not even have mechanisms in place to adequately address um, when we need to change course, when Mm -hmm. mistakes have happened and people are going to feel those ramifications, i.e. rental assistance drying up. Um, What do we like, even just to be able to say, okay, here's where the mistake happened Mm -hmm. and here's how we will correct it. So it doesn't happen in the future. I mean, it's kind of sounding like we don't even really have an adequate structure for that. No, it, it largely depends on the administration caring about the job they're doing uh, and, you know, holding their own officials accountable for when things go wrong. Uh, and uh, governors are not big on that. Uh, Peter Shumlin was, uh, if anything, even worse than um, Phil Scott about that. Um, Nobody wants to to come out in public and say their administration is failing. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but you know, if you were a manager of a business and you had someone who wasn't doing the job, you would do something about it. And you know, in state government, uh, more often than not, as Emily said, they get promoted. Um, you know, in the middle of one of the Department of Labor uh, screw ups, you know, Michael Harrington was was made inter- acting commissioner and then made permanent commissioner, even though under his watch, the Labor Department was a disaster. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> where do we go from here then? So the auditor does do some of this. Um, he's a very, the auditor's office is tiny um, and tends to work in much longer term projects. And often by the time their report comes out, it gets a little sort of buried in the news feed, as we say. And then um, there's also the problem of, so I've, you know, I read all of the auditor's reports. Government accountability is incredibly important to me. It's like 
pretty much my, it's why I ran for office as like unsexy as that is. And I still don't. So I read the report. The thing is uncovered. The mechanism to do something about that and make a public fuss is again, not there. Mm-hmm. Um, because the basic functions of our committee structures don't have a place for evaluating existing programs. We pretty much just look to create new ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that is our lack of staff. Part of that is the part-time legislature. Part of that is the citizen legislature, all these things. But New Mexico, which has a more part-time legislature than we do, they really only, um, every other year, they only meet for a month. And the year that they're meeting for longer, it's still only, I think, three months. But they have a division in their joint fiscal office that's basically like a GAO or government accountability office Mm. that works year round um, on hearings, on accountability hearings about whether or not different departments are sort of meeting their goals, fulfilling their promise. and whether or not programs and sort of theories of change are effective. And it's very possible that we could do something like that here with a minimum of, I mean, we would need more staff, but we wouldn't need that many more staff. And that's something that's been talked about since before I was in the legislature, but always sort of on the sidelines, I was involved in a project um, on it before I joined the legislature. There's a committee in the legislature called the Government Accountability Committee that no one pays any attention to um, and tends to not to all that much. Um, that is sort of a mechanism for it. But our joint committee structures, again, are like understaffed, under-resourced, not enough time, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the bummer report on what's available. <laughs> did I miss any, what did I miss, John? <laughs> Well, I, uh, I, would, I, w- I would mention one more thing that's one of my hobby horses, which has nothing to do with, with government, really. It has to do with Vermont's tendency as a whole, culturally, socially, to ignore problems. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, shortly after my partner and I moved into Vermont, we both became aware of something that we came to call the Vermont Stare, uh, <laughs> which is basically that when you suggest... Uh, a change in something. And it might be something as simple as like, you know, storing paper clips, or it might be something as, as complex, complex as, you know, fixing our money problem. Uh, what you get back is, is not a, oh, that's interesting, or a, uh, no, I don't think so. They just stare at you. And it's like, it just, goes past their heads and into the ether. Um, And this is something, you know, we've lived, we lived most of our lives in Michigan. We lived for a few years in New Hampshire before we moved here. And it's different here. Um, And that plays into this. You know, um, my partner saw it in a big organization that he worked for. I saw it it in a very small organization that I worked for. Um, And it was, you know, the same... uh, the same sort of thing. Um, and one time I was, I was interviewing for a place I worked for then, I was interviewing the outgoing, the retiring president of National Life, which is the biggest private employer in central Vermont. Um, and, you know, he was talking about like how to remain competitive in a global market when you're out here in Montpelier. And, you know, he was talking about stuff that, that 
rung with me enough that after we concluded the formal interview, I, I mentioned the Vermont stare and he like said, yes, that's it. That's what I thought. <laughs> today. Um, so, you know, um, uh, part of the fault is in our stars and part of the fault is in ourselves, I guess is what I'm saying. That's mm -hmm. something we can't do anything about. The New Mexico idea sounds awfully intriguing mm -hmm. and uh, it would be, Maybe, you know, if you get a citizen volunteer working with you, Emily, you can, you know, help, they can help develop that idea. Or if a lot of citizens are listening right now and they want to band together and yes. push the idea, mm -hmm. that would be pretty cool too. If I also okay. have a staff person at Joint Fiscal who's working on the idea, which is one of the, for my other legislator colleagues who are listening, I'm sorry, but one about what I'm about to say, but it's really like, it's been a really, to see the difference in what's available to me resource-wise now that I'm in leadership on a money committee is, I mean, it's night and day. So when I do have an idea, I don't have all the resources I need to develop it, but I at least have thought partnership in another person who is, you know, working full-time and paid to think oh, about interesting. it. Interesting. Just extraordinary. And that's a very, like, you know, that's like 15 people in the building. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you, Emily and John. Um, I want to, for the rest of the show, just kind of shift gears a little bit, because I don't think we can have John Walters on the show without getting a little politically gossipy, <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, so I'm just going to turn it right to John and say on the big political landscape, uh, what have you been digging into lately? Well, I just spent a lot of time looking at campaign finance reports and seeing, you know, where people, where the major statewide candidates raised and spent their money um, and trying to figure out sort of how, how the winners won and how the losers lost. Um, and I, you know, one thing that I haven't yet quite tackled uh, that's been suggested to me is that um, actually Southern Vermont and particularly Wyndham County may have played a very big role in the primaries this year because uh, Becca Ballant basically supercharged turnout. Uh, and, you know, that, that helped her win. She also did extremely well in Chittenden County, which is where a lot of the votes are. But uh, it's been suggested to me, for instance, that that may have, that didn't elect Becca Ballant uh, that didn't get her the nomination, but it may have pushed Sarah Copeland Hansis over the line uh, to get the Secretary of State nomination. Um, mm. because apparently, she has some ties to Wyndham County too, so she <laughs> may have had some voters to activate there, and that they were already activated because of Becca Ballant. Uh, so I have to look at the turnout numbers this year compared to the turnout numbers in past primaries to see if that's really true, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really, um, I hadn't, I've not heard that theory yet and I love it, self-centered <laughs> as I am. It would um, be about time for Southern Vermont to make a difference, you know. To, I, know to, I mean, like we have a lot of, we have a lot of pretty awesome, pretty awesome power down here and some great voters. Yeah. Um, and I think we're often taken for granted because we're so reliable in our voting. Um, yeah. And, you know, Sarah's found a decent, you know, I hosted these really regular forums to meet statewide candidates and Sarah spent, a, spent some time down here and Charity spent some time down here mm -hmm. and did sort of, you know, 
take our weird little corner of the world for granted. And actually a decent number of other statewide candidates spent a lot of time down here. Um, Sarah's brother lives in Brattleboro. Okay. Um, They're very different. (laughs) (laughs) As siblings can be. (laughs) Yes. He's also lovely. But, um, you know, so she like had a resting place here. Charity has um, some family and friends in the area too. And she's, you know, grew up in Southern Vermont. Um, not this side of Southern Vermont, but yeah, I think that's, that's a fun little thing. Supercharging our, you know, talking to folks who were just like so thrilled to go to the polls and vote for like our own Becca was, I could see that really like bringing out the primary, especially since our local races very rarely draw anyone to the primaries because they're so, um, because they're rarely competitive. Right. Yeah. The other thing I I think uh, the piece that I wrote that I think has the, put my finger on the, on the pulse more so than many of the things I write was about the state of the Vermont democratic party Mm. and how from the first of the year until through the primary, they have been on a real winning streak. Uh, They've got a, a new leadership team that seems to be the best they've had in many years. Um, And now with the results of the primary, they have completely replenished their bench and they have a bunch of people you know, they have people who are running for the big offices right now, but they also have people in the sort of like the, the second tier of the ladder who are poised to move up in a few years. You know, somebody like Sarah Copeland Hansis or um, Mike Pichak or Charity Clark, you know, might be a candidate for governor or Congress sometime in the future and not that far along in the future. Uh, so suddenly, you know, the Democratic Party has some interesting leadership going on uh, and more resources and a better uh, core staff. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot going on that's good for the Democratic Party at a time when the Republican Party just gets weaker and weaker and weaker. Um, so uh, that's uh, I mean, the Democratic Party has kind of been coasting for the last few years in a lot of ways. And now they seem to be really, you know, focused and energized. I'm curious, John, in your reporting, have you come across, you mentioned the GOP. Have you come across candidates who are running on the the Republican ticket (laughs) who, when you say, uh, like, you want to interview them or you invite them to um, a debate or what have you, and they're just like, my name's on the ballot, and they're not really campaigning in the trans, uh, traditional sense that we would we think of when we think of campaigning. Um, I've heard this from a number of Republican candidates in this neck of the woods. Are you hearing that as well? And I'm wondering uh, if it's a strategy. Well, I mean, uh, this sort of ties in with something I have observed, which is uh, the stealth candidate, uh, which is the candidate who basically is a QAnon person or a MAGA person Uh, or a very conservative Republican otherwise, who doesn't run on their core issues. They run on sort of vague things about fiscal responsibility and, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. government transparency and citizen involvement. Uh, They don't mention that what they want to do is ban library books and, you know, get critical race theory out of the schools um, and all of that stuff. Pardon me. And I was really, you know, there was an article yesterday, I think, in the Reformer family of newspapers, I think it might have started in the Manchester Journal, that Greg Sukonek did, 
um, who's a reporter in that network about a candidate running in Manchester. And I was so thrilled to see how much he really like gave this person all the rope they needed to hang themselves with like every, you know, really like let the radical ideas flow onto the page in a way that I don't actually often see because I do. I think a lot of folks in Vermont, a lot of Republicans in Vermont at least know that like if maybe they keep it buttoned up just a little bit long enough to get into office, they'll be safe. Mm -hmm. It works on the local level. You know, there have been cases where school board members have been elected who were sort of closet ultra conservatives. Um, you know, once they get into office and they, they show their true colors, they wind up losing the next time they run. But, you know, they can have at least a short term effect on, on, a, on a school district, a, a pretty profound one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they can cause a lot of trouble. They can make meetings very long and very contentious and very difficult. And in some cases, you know, drive other people off the board or drive teachers out of school or drive, uh, you know, principals out. Um, so they can, they can do a lot of damage and, you know, they realize that their true ideology won't win in Vermont. So they have to kind of hide behind these platitudes that they put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something, you know, I, I did a, I, I did a ser- an occasional series this past spring for the town elections called dregs of the ballot in which I focused the spotlight on some of these people. Uh, and I have to start doing that again with uh, with candidates for the legislature because, you know, there really aren't very, even in Vermont, there really aren't very many what we used to call traditional Republicans left anymore. What's left in the party is, you know, the far right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Scott is the exception. You know, he's basically washed his hands of the party. And, you know, what's left are the the diehards and the true believers and the people who don't, you know, consume any media other than Fox News and you know, Newsmax and QAnon. I don't, uh, what does it mean to wash your hands of the party and yet still run under its banner and accept its national money, right? Like, that's and a that, question. You know, I have a few colleagues who I work very closely with, I have a lot of respect for, are sort of kingdom adjacent folks who are moderate Republicans. And I, I, I wonder regularly, like, why, why do you, why do you stay with this thing that is such a, It has quite the reputation well, now. <laughs> wishful thinking, I suppose. Um, you know, uh, Phil Scott has gotten away with it. Well, gotten away with it. You know, he just basically says, I don't have anything to do with them and they don't have anything to do with me. But, you know, he does wear the label. And people, the few people like him and like Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker uh, and sort of Susan Collins, um, you know, provide a little bit of, validity to the Republican brand mm-hmm. that otherwise would not be there. You know, if Phil Scott was off the ballot, um, you know, there would be nothing but, you know, the, the John Clars of the world um, uh, representing the Republican Party. And then things would get really dire in a hurry for them. Um, we unfortunately, uh, Emily and John, were out of time. But any last minute uh, notes you want to leave listeners with before we sign off? 
Lots to think about, folks. We, we covered government accountability. We covered housing as a human right. We, we covered um, the GOP. So juicy episode. Thank you for that, John. If folks want to uh, read more of your work, where can they find the Vermont Political Observer? Well, it's uh, very simple. It's the VPO, T-H-E-V-P-O dot org, or just, you know, um, search for Vermont Political Observer and you'll find it. Um, so that's where I hang out. Fantastic. And Emily, if people want to be in contact with you. I just want to also give a plug for John's charming Twitter feed. Um, I can be found, or you can find ways to find me, I think is probably more specific at emilykornheiser.org, where there are links to my phone number and my email address and all my social media feeds, as well as events and opportunities to connect in the real life. Thank you. And as always, you can find the Vermont, uh, the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station every Friday at 2 p.m., as well as our Captivate page, our Facebook page. And you can always drop us an email at the Vermont, the gosh, see, I'm trying to do the Vermont Political Observer. Sorry. You can drop us an email at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com and have a great weekend, everybody.